friends. Welcome to the Ridgedale Students Podcast. Ridgedale Student Ministry is a family of middle and high school students at Ridgedale Baptist Church following the way of Jesus together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you'd like more information on all things RSM, you can find us at ridgedalebaptist.org students or on our social media pages. Thanks for stopping by and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. We're all standing around kind of reminiscing about what life has been like and what everything has kind of done, like everything that's just brought us to this point. And in the middle of like a really tender, nice moment that I'm having with like these friends of mine, all of a sudden Sierra's brother just interjects and he's like, I want to say something. I want to make a speech, which I thought was really strange. Um... And so he begins this like very heartfelt speech, this, you know, I'm really thankful that, that Chris has incorporated me into his wolf pack of brothers. And I thought that was really strange because I didn't really see us in that way. And he continues on and he gets to like this moment in the speech where he was like, I would do anything for you guys. Like if we go out tonight and like something crazy happens and we could all get arrested for it, like I'll be the one to take the fall. And then he pulls out a knife and like cuts his hand. And it's like, we're going to be blood brother. And I'm just kidding. That story didn't actually happen. But what that story does tell us is that there is this thing called sacrifice. And that most of us do not really understand what sacrifice is. No? I think most of us understand that sacrifice is a real thing, but for the most part, we don't really understand how sacrifice is meant to work. What are we supposed to do in the process of sacrificing? We're in this series, we're in this like weekend, where our theme is the theme altars. And it only makes sense that we talk about what the altar actually does, right? It only makes sense that we talk about what actually happens to us on the altar. Last night, we looked at the first of the three steps in the process of consecration, cleansing. We have to look inwardly to our lives, and we have to see that there may be some things that hold us back from deep relationship to God, And that those things, as long as they hold us back, have to go through a process of removal in order for us to draw nearer to God. That involves walking a different path. And that path will require us to confront certain things in our life that we may have to remove or cut out or bring away from everything that holds us back to God. And so what happens on the altar when this sacrifice actually takes place? What actually happens on the altar? John Tyson, I mentioned him last night. John Tyson says this, an altar is about memorializing theophany. The altar is about memorializing theophany. Theophany, just a big word for encounter, experience of God. And so what happens, if you look at the Old Testament particularly, what happens is the people of God would be moving through these different spaces and they would see God interact. They would encounter the presence and the interaction of God. And what would happen then is they would say, we need to remember this. We have to memorialize this. And so they would build these things that were called altars. And they would revisit these things. And the story would be spread throughout the entire people. And they would understand, oh, when you come to this place, you're remembering the encounter of God that Moses had here. You're remembering the encounter of God that Abraham had here. We are memorializing encounter and interaction with God. Here's my summary of what the altar is for them. Altars are a place to sacrifice 
for transformation in light of encounter. Altars are a place to sacrifice for transformation in light of encounter. Have you encountered God somewhere? Have you built up something to remember, to remind you of that encounter? And then as you revisit that space, what is the process of dedication, of laying something else down of your life in that moment of remembrance? See, coming to the altar is actually just coming back to the place or the moment of encounter with God in order to be deeply transformed through laying back down the things that hold us back from God. That's where we're going this morning, and we'll be looking at this from Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. But before we get into that, would you guys go with me to the Lord in prayer? Father, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you do. You reveal yourself to us. God, I'll tell a story here in just a second of, of my real encounter with God that was more than religious experience. God, you became real in that moment. All of us prayerfully have that moment. And so, God, if we don't, let this weekend be that time. Let us encounter you, be deeply transformed, be changed more into the image of God. Would you do that work in us by your spirit to our good and to your glory? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody think aliens are real? Just a show of hands. Anybody think aliens are real? Okay. I might be with you. I'm not really sure. Even you look really apprehensive about pointing that out. Okay. I'm with you. I, I really think that there is a possibility that aliens are real. And I can't prove that. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist like my wife. But I, I really think that there's a chance that aliens could be real. But if aliens are real and like somebody can come to me one day and they can be like, Chris... I have proof that aliens are real. What I know will happen at that point is that like that encounter with that proof, if it's legit, will have to change like a lot of stuff about the way that I think about the world. It has to. I don't think it negates any of the most important stuff, but I think it does have to change some of the ways that we think about the world. We look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans is one of the greatest works of theology ever written. Paul, for the first 11 chapters of the book, is making this one brilliant argument. That Jesus is worthy of your total devotion and trust. No matter if you're coming from the Gentile perspective, like he tackles in Romans 1, or whether you're coming from the Jewish perspective, like he tackles in Romans 2, whatever space you land on, Jesus is worthy. I mentioned it last night. He's worthy of our entire lives. We make space for what's most important. We make space for most, what's most worthy. And Paul, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, is saying, this is him. It's Jesus. He's worthy of everything. He's the only thing that will come farther than you come for it. Paul makes this great case. He gets to chapter 12 and he says this, starting off in chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's been building and building and building and building. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. At the point that he wants to make his case, he makes an appeal. He doesn't command, he doesn't compel. He doesn't say, you have to do this. He says, friend, look at the evidence. Look at what you've experienced and tell me that Jesus isn't worthy of everything that you've got. 
The first thing that we have to break down in this passage is that Paul is appealing to the experience of God's mercy. He tells the people, listen, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. A lot of times we look at Romans 12.1 and we make the central focus of it to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But the living sacrifice doesn't happen without the experience of God's mercy. He's not saying just do it because I said so. He's saying remember how you've experienced God. Remember who he's been. Remember who, like, who's walked with you through seasons of difficulty and struggle and suffering. Who's been the one that's constantly been next to you? Who is the one that's constantly by your side? You cannot, friends, listen to this. You cannot respond to something that you have not experienced. You can't respond to something you haven't experienced. I've never been to a Super Bowl. And so I can't say what it's like to be at a Super Bowl game. I've watched almost all of them in my lifetime on the TV. But I cannot, for a fact, say what it's like to be at a Super Bowl. In the same way, we cannot say what it's like to respond to God if we've never encountered his mercies. That may be a little bit shaking for you. You've grown up in church and you've been around church and you've been with parents who raised you in a godly home. But if you, if you, Graham Lydell, or if you, Logan Heitmuller, or if you, Victoria Gray, haven't experienced God for yourself, you cannot respond to it. Paul says this on purpose. He makes this compelling argument all the way from Romans 1 to Romans 11. But the arguments don't change anyone. And so Paul begins Romans 12 by appealing to encounter. He says, you must respond to this. Arguments don't change us, but encounter does. The question for us to answer then, for us, for Paul, for the Romans, for you, for me, for everyone, have you encountered God's mercy? Has it become real to you? Has it become tangible? Is it something that you can visit the spot that it took place and you can recall vividly memories from that moment of just how real and physical and visceral it was to be in the presence of God's mercy? I remember the the moment that it was for me. Passion 2013, I'm in the Georgia Dome. I can tell you, I can I can vividly recall it. I walk into the Georgia Dome and I had been around church. I had been in great worship sets. I had been in these moments where like I could tell that something was happening in the room, but it wasn't something that deeply connected to me. So I walk into this conference where there's 66,000 people all worshiping Jesus. And I remember this moment where like something in the atmosphere changed. And it was like all of this stuff that seems very real to all these other people is now feeling very real to me. God's mercy is very real to me in this point. And I remember this feeling of just like, I could, I could just feel the weight of my sin that had pushed me into this deep, deep hole. And I remember thinking like, there's nothing that's going to pull me out of this. And in that moment, God's reaching down and he's saying, listen, man, I, I got this. I got this. I can pull you out of whatever situation you are in. And at that moment, encounter became more real for me than any religious experience ever had. 
I look at the life that I had projected for myself up to that point, and it looks very different than the life I live right now. But one thing is for certain, I am far more satisfied being someone who's encountered God's mercy and responded to it than I ever would have been doing whatever it was that I had planned for myself up to that point. We have to encounter. It's not just enough to have good religious experience. The mercies of God have to become real to us. The second thing Paul's doing in this, though, is he's telling us how to respond rightly. This is kind of a big deal, yeah? You experience God's mercy, like you have an encounter with God. Let's say you're sitting here in a worship set this morning, you're sitting in a worship set tonight, or even just in small groups, and all of a sudden it rushes on you. God, your mercy is real. It's physical. It's tangible. I can't shake this thing. Everything feels different now. My desires are shifting. My heart is shifting. I feel this heart of stone being removed and a heart of flesh being replaced in us. What do you do? How do we adequately respond to the mercies of God? Gee, thanks, uh, Mr. Christ. This is great. I love it. Um, I'm just going to go about my life now. No, we can't do that. For Paul, right response looks like this. Daily, voluntary sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Tim Keller said once, the problem with a living sacrifice is it can drag itself off the altar. Problem with a living sacrifice as it can drag itself off the altar. So response then has to become not this moment. Most of us envision salvation, envision experiencing God's grace as this moment in time where it's happened and now everything afterward is just like somehow different, but we can't actually describe how it is different. What Paul is describing here then is the response becomes a choice. Even better, what we talked about last night, it becomes a pattern. It becomes a way of life. It becomes following after the way of Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did in order to become like him. This is what right response looks like. The intent then is that we choose sacrifice. I've encountered and experienced God's mercy, and so I choose to sacrifice. Not because I'm scared of God, not because I'm guilty or because I'm guilted into doing this, but because his mercy is so overwhelming what else can I do? It's so big and it's so grand and it's so expansive that all I want to do is say, Jesus, just take everything. Just take it all. I don't want this thing that I wanted forever. I want you more than I wanted the things that I've held on to so, so deeply. We have to start here, though. This is incredibly important. It all flows perfectly. Paul's a genius. We have to start at this point because what Paul is about to tell the Romans has everything to do with a power that exists in the world that is deeply opposed to you being transformed, visiting the altar, or being made into the image of Jesus. Look with me at Romans 12, verse 2. Paul begins by saying this, Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. I remember, this is Samson's first retreat. I remember my first retreat. My dad is a student pastor. My parents have been in student ministry since I was like four. And so I remember the first time that I got the opportunity to go with them on a retreat somewhere over a weekend. 
We went to this place in South Carolina called Awanataw Valley, and it was incredible. I've actually looked into going there. It's just a little bit too far. But there was this, like, huge lake right next to these really awesome cabins. Uh, they had, like, Hummers, like retired military Hummers that they would take you on off-road adventures on. Like, it was incredible. For five-year-old me, this was the pinnacle of, like, every weekend of my entire life. It was awesome. So I remember one day we're on this retreat, and they had this huge zip line. So the zip line went from the top of this little hill and it went over the water and then it ended at this pier. And what you could do is you could like jump, like go off. I mean, you would fly. Like you were just going so fast and it was so long. So you built up the speed and this momentum. And it was an incredible like rush. Like I just remember feeling like I'd never felt adrenaline like that before. So I remember we're all doing this thing, we're all going down this thing, and all of a sudden, one of the high school boys that was there, he's kind of a small guy, like a little bit more petite, and uh, he was like, I really want to go down this thing, but here's the deal, I want to see how far I can get down the zip line. And so we kind of talked it out with him, we're like, all right, what, what do you do, like, what do you need to do in order to get as far down the zip line as humanly possible? He's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to curl up into a ball, and then I'm going to like wrap my arms around the little handlebars so that I can like basically just be like a little M&M that's just flying as fast as humanly possible down this zip line, and then I'm just going to like drop off, I'm going to jump off. And like right before I get to the edge, and then I'm going to hit the water. And so we're like, oh, that's awesome. That's going to be incredible. So like a bunch of people are videoing this, and we're like super amped. We're like, this is going to be the greatest thing. This is going to go on America's like best videos or something. This is before YouTube, I guess. And so like we didn't really know where to upload this. And so he gets to the top of the zip line, and he kind of positions himself, and he's getting himself right. He starts going down. I mean, he is like curled into a ball. Like this man is as tight as he possibly can be on this little handlebars. And he is zooming. Like it was incredible to watch. All of us are just like, oh my gosh, he's going to be famous after this. And so he's going and he's going and he's going and he's picking up speed and he's picking up speed and he's picking up speed. And then we start thinking, huh, he's really getting close. Like, he's real, like, oh man, like, you're going faster and faster. You really need to start unballing yourself at this point until, boom, he hits the pier. And we watch as this dude just crumples into the water and kind of, like, falls just like a delicate little sack of meat into this, like, icy cold water. A bunch of people had to jump in and get him. He was okay. He was unconscious, but he was okay. <laughs> It was alarming. It was a little alarming, I'll be honest. He is alive still. He is. He has a family and three children. Really scary to think about. Um, but I tell that story to say this. This dude had formed himself in such a way that he could get as far as humanly possible thinking this was going to be the greatest experience of his life, only to have it end with him slamming into a pier and being rushed to the ER. Paul moves from this appeal to a warning. He tells the people at Rome, do not be conformed. Don't be formed into this thing. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but sacrifice is not something that plays well in modern 2023 America. 
To sacrifice is something that for most people feels offensive or appalling that we would ever reject the desires that we have. It's a really great book. I don't recommend that you read it because it's really thick and it's really difficult to read. But Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, what Carl Truman argues is that there's this new religion that's beginning to develop called radical individualism. What radical individualism looks like then is it takes all of the things that the Christian faith practices, sin and salvation and sanctification and all of this stuff, and it morphs it into something that's really the opposite of what Christianity proclaims. Sin in radical individualism is anything that says you don't get to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody or offend somebody. Just do whatever you want to do. Be free, express yourself, do whatever it is. If you want to dye your hair turquoise, dye your hair turquoise. It's whatever. If you want to practice your sexuality in this way, then do it. It's yours. It's freedom. It's your body. It's your choice. Sin in this then is anything that rejects that notion. And salvation is us fully coming into the embrace of living a life that is totally unhindered from the morality and the codes and the ethics of the world that's around us. You're living in a time right now in history where the dominant view of the culture is to be radically individual only as long as your individuality conforms to the moral and the ethical flow of everyone else. And what it is, is it's a cry for authenticity. I want to be real. And in reality, authenticity is getting traded for conformity. The word conformed here that Paul uses is the Greek word suskematizo. What it means, it kind of like puts out this picture. Think about it. When, when you take a, a vase and you pour water or you pour sand into that vase, what does the water or the sand do? It molds itself into the shape that the vase has. The water and the sand itself don't hold that shape, but when they're poured into this conforming presence... It molds itself into that shape. What Paul is warning us is that the world has a container. It has a container that it desires to fill you with. And it's really easy to fill into this container because everything in the world is geared to us being conformed to its image. Whether it's music that we listen to or whether it's a TV show or a movie that we watch or the books that we read or the conversations that we hear casually in the hallways, most things in this world that are not explicitly not doing this are all attempting to conform us into this image that the world's put out. It's saying be like everybody else, conform yourself to our morality, conform yourself to our ethics, conform yourself to this vision of radical individualism that says don't listen to Jesus or the Bible or the church or whatever religion you would subscribe to. You are your God. You get to decide what it is that you'll live for. Now, this isn't to say that you should go around listening to K-Love everywhere or just watching The Chosen constantly, even though I'm not a huge fan of K-Love, but The Chosen's pretty dope. But it does mean that we have to examine what we consume with thoughtful intent. Nothing in the world is neutral. Everything is forming you into either the person that you desire to become or away from the person that you desire to become. John Mark Comer says this, In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for the apprentices of Jesus who gave the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in the world, but not for those who give their attention to the 24-hour news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama, 
or the nonstop fuel of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. But again, we become what we give our attention to, for better or for worse. Just like the kid on the zip line, we either go through our life conformed to this box that may get us a thrill, that may get us as fast as humanly possible into this space of excitement and arousal and all of these different things, but it also leads us to slamming into a pier of conformity. Or we can be transformed into something, and as we get closer and closer to the end, we eventually drop into the cool waters of God's love and his grace and his kindness. What cuts us off from this type of conformity is visiting the altar. It's regular sacrifice in order to be transformed. Look again with me at transformation. Paul says this in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Anybody follow Jesus long enough to know that transformation isn't an overnight process? Amen. Amen, a few of you guys. Yeah. But isn't that how like transformation and salvation and Christianity is packaged to most of us? Man, if you'll just pray this prayer, and if you'll just walk down this aisle and talk to your pastor, and then he'll baptize you a couple weeks later after he's had one like two-minute interview with you, and then everything after that is good. You're free. You're saved. You have salvation, and now you have this eternal ticket into heaven. Many of us, if we've lived long enough with Jesus, know that transformation doesn't work like that. There's stuff that lives deeply within us that has to be progressively removed over time as we form ourselves away from who we were and form ourselves more into who we're becoming in the image of Jesus. So many in churches today think that just praying the prayer and walking the aisle and doing all of the right stuff will lead to us being these transformed individuals. And it's just not that simple. Following Jesus isn't like this magical transformation so much as it is about gradually waking up to a world where our desires are shifted day after day after day. And Paul sees this transformation take place in two different phases. Look at this. First, we're transformed by a renewed mind. He says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. What is the renewal of our mind? It's this shift in desires. If you ever had the opportunity to read the, the early church father, St. Augustine. Augustine was all about this. Everything focuses on our desire. Either we desire to be formed into the image of Christ or we don't desire to be formed in the image of Christ. And we'll pursue whatever forms us in the direction that we want to go. It all boils down to desire. And so this renewal of our mind is a shift in our desires. It's us moving away from what we once desired and moving gradually into new desires. Desires that are holy and righteous and focused on the way of Jesus. Think about it for a second. What if one day you have this particular sin? Envision whatever that sin is in your mind. And you are 100 out of 100 times going to say, I will pursue that sin. And then Christ steps in. And you no longer see conformity as the way that you're meant to go, but you see this, this vision of transformation, of being made into the image of Jesus, of moving your focus and moving your desires into a different direction. You're not going to go from 100 to zero overnight. 
It is a gradual renewal of our mind. But here's what it looks like. The morning before, you start at a 100. And the next morning, you move to a 99. And you've been following and feeding into these desires for Jesus for a month now. And that 99 is now at a 97. And then you do it for a year. And that 97 goes to a 94. And then you move through another decade of life. And that 94 goes to a 70. And then that 70 becomes a 40. And then that 40 becomes something where you no longer recognize the desire for this one thing that you always wanted. And you gradually wake up to a new world where you desire something that's just different. We begin the process of transformation with a renewed mind as we shift our desires away from the world and all the conformity that it offers us. And we shift ourselves into, Jesus, I want your desires. The second thing that we see Paul say here is that we're transformed through testing and discernment. This is really interesting. I, I've like just recently, as I've read through Romans 12 several times in preparation for this weekend, this is something that just kind of dawned on me. What does he mean by that through testing you may discern what is the will of God? What, what does it mean for Jesus or Paul or God or the Holy Spirit to invite us into a testing and discerning relationship? Here's what I've come to. What did Jesus constantly say in the Gospels when people came to him wanting to know if he was the real deal? Come and see. Follow me. Walk with me for a week. Walk with me for a mile. Walk with me for two days. Walk with me however long. And then you add up the evidence and you tell me if it's real or not. Jesus nowhere in the Gospels compels someone to believe just because he said so. His consistent invitation is to say, come and watch and see what I do. And you tell me if it's the real deal or not. And time and time again, the people who take him up on that offer never leave his side. Have you ever stopped and thought that maybe Jesus knew what he was doing? Like that maybe Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived. That he had actually figured it all out. That he had actually had every single right answer. That the way that Jesus walked will never lead you down the wrong path. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that Jesus may have known what he was up to? Or maybe, here, just think for this on a second. Have you ever thought that maybe you don't have it all figured out? Have you ever thought that maybe the moments where you're feeding into the sin that you desire most, when you're feeding into the gossip that you just can't seem to escape... You're feeding into a divisiveness that you just want to stir people up. That you're not actually living your fullest life. When you feed into the addiction to what you watch on the internet or when you feed into the addiction that you have and the way that you speak to your parents, your peers, and the language that you use, that you're maybe not living a great life. That you don't feel whole and satisfied and fulfilled and deeply integrated with the grain of the universe. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. And we have to understand, guys, this is a sacrifice for you to come to that realization to realize that maybe when I goof off the entire time I'm in small group, I'm actually not like doing anything for myself. I'm actually removing myself from the thing that's going to most satisfy me. I'm removing myself from presence. I'm removing myself from community. I'm not actually living into the fullness that God has for me. That requires sacrifice. 
It requires you to lose something within yourself. I think Jim Elliott said it best. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. You think your sin will satisfy you? Take a look at what Jesus called people to. Did it ever end in satisfaction? Take a look at the people who have said time and time again that me living for this radical individualism is going to be the best thing for my life. I think first and foremost, Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche lived his whole life just railing against church, called it the opiate of the masses, that Christ was just this thing that numbed people from the reality of the world, and that it did nothing for them, that it had no good in it. And how does Friedrich Nietzsche end his life? In an insane asylum, peeing himself and railing against God up until the very moment that he died. No joy and no peace and no fulfillment. Did he have it figured out? That's not how I want to end my life. We have to choose and we have to determine, is the sacrifice that I make worth what I receive in return? To wrap up, I remember this one really cool moment in like Samson's childhood when he was probably about two. We took him to a pool for the first time. Took him to this pool and we were trying to teach him how to swim. We were trying to teach him how to just like be around water because he hadn't really been around water outside of the bathtub yet. And I remember there was this moment where he could walk and he could come right up to the edge of the pool, but he definitely could not swim. Swimming for him, he knew enough about to be, to, to be aware of the fact that if he jumped into the pool and mom and dad weren't around, that was a bad idea. But how awesome does jumping into a pool look? We love it. As kids, the first time you do it, like if you've never done it before, it just looks incredible. You see these people jumping off these diving boards, having these amazing experiences where they leap into the water and they burst out and everything flies everywhere. And it looks so enjoyable. Samson is standing at the edge of this pool and he's looking at me and I look at him and I'm like, oh, it's time. He's going to jump in. We're going to do this thing. And so I go over to him. And as soon as I start approaching him, I can see the apprehension on his face. Because everything that's within him says you need to conform to what you know is safe and comfortable and able to be controlled. You don't need to do this. As fun as it looks, just conform to the things that you're feeling right now. To jump is to trust and to lose and to sacrifice and safety just feels way more natural. What I've always done just feels way more natural. But there's also this desire where he knows that the kiddie pool, the inflatable that we put in the yard isn't everything that he's meant for. That when he's five, six, seven, eight years old, that that's not what's going to satisfy him, that that's not going to be the thing that draws him into his deepest joy. He knows that there's this tension between the conformity that he feels within himself and the desire to rush headlong into a space where he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he does know that there is the possibility that he will find more joy and peace and fulfillment as he jumps into that space. And he is squirming and wrestling internally with that decision. You can see it on kids' faces. Oh, I want to do it. I'm I'm jumping back. I'm moving. I'm, I'm doing the head fake thing. I want to jump into this. And then at one point in the process, something cracks in the desire for his conformity and his desire for the joy that's going to come in jumping takes over and he leaps. 
with everything that he's got, flails his body into the air, and he begins the descent into the pool. I catch him, he comes out of the water, and he's just like, what? Flailing, kicking his arms, screaming with joy, not because he lost something in the process, but because he realized that the desire that was within him that said there is more to be found in the pool than standing on the side or standing in your kiddie pool for your entire life is actually real. I found it when I jumped. And he wants to do it over and over and over again until the moment that we say, buddy, we have to leave the pool. It's been seven hours. Constantly, dad, let me jump in again. Dad, let me jump in again. Dad, jump and jump in again. Are you going to catch me? Dad, let me jump in again. I want to do it. I want to do it over and over and over and over again. Friends, real loss will happen at the altar. When we allow this desire that's within us that says that jumping into the pool or embracing a life of sacrifice in order for deeper intimacy with Jesus is worth our jumping, you will lose something in the process and you will gain infinitely more. See, the thing in that story that made the whole difference in all of it wasn't the the joy that Samson experienced when he jumped into the pool. And it wasn't the fact that he did it over and over and over again. And it wasn't the fact that he finally allowed this conformity that was within him to lose the desire to be in the pool. The thing that makes the whole difference in the story has nothing to do with Samson. And it has everything to do with the fact that someone was sitting in the pool waiting to catch him. Maybe you're at the point where you're standing on the edge of the pool. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I know what I'm going to lose. I know I'm going to lose friendships. I know I might lose this relationship. I know I might lose making sports or school or whatever it is, the priority of my life moving forward. And you're sitting there squirming, jumping back and forth between the desire to jump into the pool and the fear and the desire for conformity that keeps you on the sideline. Can I tell you something? You never go to the altar alone. Every single time we return to the altar, the Father is waiting there and He's saying, just jump into the pool. I will be there, I will catch you, and you will find your deepest joy and your deepest satisfaction in laying down what you cannot keep in order for me to hand you the way that was always better for you. Can we pray?